Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a wonderful guest on today who we have been in talks with to get on the program for quite a while. And finally, our schedule's aligned. We have the amazing Rob Lauer with us. How are you today, Rob? I'm great. Thanks for asking me to be here. Oh, we're just so excited to have you. Rob is, well, I won't even start talking about him because we're going to read his bio first, but boy, is he a person. And we're going to talk about some really interesting things today. So go ahead, Landon, let's start with the bio and then we'll dive right in. All right. Rob Lauer is an award-winning playwright, theatrical and television director, actor, and TV talk show host. He is a 1983 BYU graduate with a BA in writing for TV and cinema. In 1981, Rob wrote Digger, a play dealing with Joseph Smith's early involvement with folk magic, peep stones, money digging, and his courtship of Emma. The play won BYU's 1982 Mayhew Award for Drama and was produced by the Y in December 1982. Uh, this was two years before the Salamander Letter emerged and five years before D. Michael Quinn's published his first ground groundbreaking book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. So you you were early in on that yeah. uh, knowledge. Cutting edge, yep. cutting edge right here. Digger was later published in November 1988 issue of Sunstone. In 2013, it was presented as a Reader's Theater production by the Earl Hamner Jr. Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia. In 1986, Rob wrote The Beehive State, a comedy drama dealing with post-manifesto LDS polygamy in 1903. The show was produced by a non-LDS theater company in Virginia during the summer of 1989 and published in the December 1989 issue of Sunstone. From 1997 through 2003, he served as associate director of the LDS Church's Hill Camorra pageant. Rob now lives in the Hampton Roads region of Virginia, where he edits a local monthly magazine and, produce, uh, and produces hosts a local TV talk show. He is currently working on two Mormon polygamy-themed projects, a play set in the immediate aftermath of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and a novel about three elderly LDS church members living polygamously in Iron County, Utah in 1922. Readers' editions of his plays Digger and the Beehive State, along with a new essay entitled Mormon Drama, will be published in a single volume later this year. So... Welcome, Rob. It sounds like you're into the polygamy uh, playwright. <laughs> the world's most renowned polygamous playwright. <laughs> that's it. That's it. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating subject. You know. It is a fascinating subject. And I think now our viewers can see why we were so excited to have Rob on. He is right up our alley with theater, mountain meadows, discussion of polygamy, absolutely <laughs> everything. So now this is going to be a wonderful conversation. And I've had the chance to interview Rob before. So... I kind of know, I mean, his story is just incredible. So we are really excited to be able to bring it here uh, to all of our Mormonish viewers. So I think we'll start out just by asking Rob a little bit about his background, because you were not born LDS, yet a decade or so later, here you are at BYU. So tell us how that happened. <laughs> Take us on the I, journey. <laughs> well, I, I was born in Portsmouth, Virginia, which if anyone knows anything about the evangelical television, the Christian Broadcasting Network, that all started here in Portsmouth when I was a child. My parents weren't evangelicals. We were Methodist. We just went to church on Sundays. Our social life revolved around church because in the South, everyone's life at that time did. You didn't necessarily have to be a Bible reader or pray all the time or be you know, religious. It was more social. But I was the type of kid that took it all very serious. I was a very serious-minded kid about right and wrong and spirituality. And the Bible fascinated me. The stories did. Um, and so as I was 
in elementary school and became sort of paying attention to things in, in church, the creeds and things that we recited. And I began reading the Bible in fourth grade. Um, I came to the conclusion by the time I was about 12 or 13 that I simply just did not believe Christianity, things like the virgin birth and uh, the focus on original sin and Jesus dying on the cross. And you have to accept that by faith in order to get to heaven when you die so you don't go to hell. That whole scenario, which is sort of the scenario of evangelical Christianity, just I didn't find that in the Bible. It seemed that people were just sort of cherry picking verses and coming up with this uh, theological paradigm. And um, so I sort of rejected that by the time I was about 14. And um, really um, didn't give a lot of thought much more to religion until a couple of years later in high school in American history class, we came across a very short entry on Joseph Smith and the Mormon settlement of the West. And it just was so sort of weird, you know, gold plates and angels and basically being the intimates for this huge movement of pioneers across the U.S. It was fascinating. So I wanted to find out more. So I went to the World Book Encyclopedia that we had at home. They had a, a drawing from a 19th century book about Mormons of the first vision. It showed Joseph and Jesus and God above him. And I thought, wow, I don't believe that Jesus and God are the same being. Mormons believe the same thing I do find out more about this. So I went to the library, took out all the books I could find. The first one I read was No Man Knows My History by Fong Brody. Oh. Um, and how and, old are you at this time? You're 14 time years 15. old. Reading. It was 15. 15. This is like a Joseph Smith story. You're literally this young man. A nerdy Joseph incredible... Smith. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But uh, uh. I, I, and I, I didn't, uh, because I grew up in, in this part of Virginia, this is the area where Jamestown, the first English settlement, the Lost Colony, Colonial Williamsburg, all those are within driving distance of my house right now. I grew up around history. So I, um, reading Von Brody's book, I, I read lots of historical biographies by that time because I'm sort of a history nerd. Then she was an atheist and didn't believe Joseph Smith's claims and gave a natural ex naturalistic explanation for everything, did not turn me off. I figured well, this is the way a historian writes about a religious figure. It's not supposed to be faith promoting. So I found him fascinating. It didn't turn me off. I started reading everything else I could read and continued reading until my senior year of high school, about two years later. And um, really delved in. There was so much out there. I mean, I read anti-Mormon stuff, stuff from the Tanners, anything I could find on any denomination within the Restoration. And really came to a grasp of, I think, um, the theology of the early Mormon church, the theology of Joseph Smith. And it made a lot of sense to me. And um, I sort of, I didn't have this LDS terminology, but I came to believe in that theology. I thought it was rational. I thought it was humanistic. It was positive. It was progressive. And um, so I wrote Salt Lake uh, in my senior year and said, I've been studying your church. and I think I'd like to join. Assuming that the Mormon church, I knew they were sort of strict and then they had missionaries, but I figured they weren't that different from your major mainline Protestant churches. And so about a month or so later, two female missionaries appeared at my door and uh, came in and they, I guess they didn't know anything about me. They just, I was just a referral. So they said, well, tell us what you know about the LDS, but you know about the Mormon church. Back then they could call it Mormonism. It wasn't verboten yet. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. Not so, a victory uh, for Satan then. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, well, Satan's sister missionaries asked me what I knew about the Mormon church. And I proceeded to talk for about 45 minutes. And at the end of it, they were just sort of like, 
dumb-eyed and uh said wow i think you might know more than i do <laughs> but they i didn't know i knew nothing about lds culture and i didn't really know how mormon theology existed or was viewed within the modern lds church and uh, but they saw me as like a golden contact they called it and so they went and talked to the bishop and the mission president they had me out to sacrament meeting two weeks later to give the um this was in the evening when you had a 20 minute speaker and a 15 minute speaker and a five minute speaker now when evening ceremonies went on for a year an hour and a half and i was the main speaker at the first sacrament meeting i ever went to and uh by that time i had a good yeah i'll be baptized and i was really they saw that in it. you right there they knew <laughs> well, yeah, and, 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 but then i joined the church and i realized very quickly that this theology of Jesuits was something that everyone sort of tiptoed around. Now, this was 1977, uh, 78, really correlation had not really come full force outside of Utah yet. So if, for instance, I was called immediately to head the young adult program to teach young adult gospel doctrine, I said, well, do you have a lesson manual? And they said, well, go down to the Ward Library and we have a bunch of old ones there, pick out one that you like. So I picked out a lesson manual from 1971 called My Religion and Me, they really dealt, I mean, the older manuals before correlation yeah. actually treated the adults like adults. They were like textbooks. There was a lot more to them. And they went in much depth about theology and theological differences between the Mormon Mormonism and, and mainstream Christianity. But uh, I also learned very quickly that um, just LDS culture, I guess it tiptoed around things. Of course, polygamy Oddly enough, they still talked about that pretty openly back then, but it was, you know, we stopped that in 1890. Well, I knew from my readings that wasn't exactly that clean cut. Uh, but I went along with it. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to live it. I understand why this makes people uncomfortable. Sure. But uh, it did sort of burn me too, because I thought, well, you're sort of uh, dissing your ancestors too. I mean, these people, especially the women and the children raised this sacrificed a lot they sacrificed their lives for this and sort of to be embarrassed about them didn't strike me as eh, particularly honorable but um also things such as um plurality of gods becoming a god you know there was the the, the lingo of becoming like god I thought, okay okay if you want to say it sure why not <laughs> And I became really aware that they were trying, even at that point, to sort of fit into mainstream Christianity. This was the very same year that they were doing a sort of a whole host of Reader's Digest inserts about family home evening and how you know, your neighbors that. might be ideal family with a, you know, white family, husband, wife, 2.5 kids. You know, you did, but they were not putting out their husband, wife, eight, nine, 10 kids. <laughs> but, um, but tried to appeal to the mainstream. And also, this was about a year into the church, they came out against the ERA, which surprised me mm -hmm. because I thought, well, we believe in Heavenly Mother. If we believe in goddesses and the, the God is essentially the divine is actually female too, what's the hang up with the ERA? But um, so that, that but was- you're, one of, you're probably one of the few that understood the concept of Heavenly Mother or any of that, just because you'd read so many sources. I bet the mainstream member was not thinking that back then or knew anything well, about I, that. I, I you did know they, more they, than anyone else. Exactly. Actually, in Newsweek around that same year, when they became public that the church was fighting the ERA, particularly in Virginia, because Virginia was one of the three states, I think, that could still vote against it. And so the LDS church was big time, you know, 
buses, everything else, bussing members up to the Capitol to, to protest. Meddling in politics yeah. in another state? What? Exactly. Well, there, there, were, there was a group called Mormons Against ERA. Of course, their yeah. literature was all published by the LDS Church. But, uh, you know, it was sort of like a, not a shell, I guess, a shell company, a shell organization. A clone <laughs> company, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I did not realize that they were busing people even for ERA. I knew oh, Prop yeah, 8, yeah. but yeah, yeah. not was, ERA. Um, wow. But, um, Interesting. I remember Newsweek ran a story uh, by uh, their religion writer, Kenneth Woodworth, who was a very, very respectful, thoughtful religion writer who obviously had much respect for the distinctive elements of Mormon theology. And I remember uh, it was sort of like, you know, don't think the Mormons hate women just because they're fighting the ERA. In fact, they don't, I remember the headline said they don't not only believe in God, but they believe in a Mrs. God, in quotes. Well, everyone that I knew, they were irate about this. I said, well, no, read the article. I mean, he quoted from, oh, my father. He referred to Eliza R. Snow, to mm -hmm. the whole idea of Heavenly Mother, and was presented very positively. But because of that, phrase god and mrs god which was just put there to grab the reader's attention everyone was interpreting this as anti-mormon and because i guess i'm not i'm not a scriptural literalist and i know i think of theology more as creating a a paradigm for ethics than a way of envisioning things and to make sense of things i um i just saw the heavenly mother thing all along as okay the divine is also equally feminine and women are as equally divine as men are only to realize that's not necessarily the way the LDS Church now takes. I knew, you know, I knew that there was in the days of polygamy was one thing, but I assumed that the, by the 1970s they had sort of entered the 1970s, uh, and actually they were just entering the 1950s. Uh, They're always that, 20 years behind. Even President right. Holland has said that we are always necessarily 20 years behind. I guess maybe that means God is 20 years behind. I'm not sure how to interpret I, I, that. I, I don't wrong. know. I, I didn't know that prophets basically did this. Let's yes. see what public opinion was. <laughs> or did you have, you know, exploratory committees and PR people do your, Survey. and then you reveal the revelation. <laughs> That's right. But um, anyway, I, I, you know, I, I still stuck with it, but I realized, wow, I'll just shut up about things and just make the best of all this. I mean, you know, we, we still believe generally the same things. And I went to BYU and, um, I, you know, majoring in, in theater and television and screenwriting, but I had to take a lot of theater classes and uh, really dove into studying uh, Mormon history. Uh, my first semester at BYU on Sunday afternoon, a, a fundamentalist Mormon missionary came through our apartment complex. I was the only one in the apartment and I answered the door and he handed me up bunch of free books by Ogden Kraut and these people about the Adam God doctrine. That totally fascinated me because I knew that Brigham Young had taught that. I knew that the church never really fully embraced it or was comfortable with it. And it disappeared in the early 20th century completely. But um, getting into this literature, I thought, wow, there's a lot more here than I thought uh, about Adam God and things like blood atonement. And at this point, even um, because the uh, the racial policy with the priesthood had changed the previous year. A lot of fundamentalists were really harping on that as well. And diving into all that and getting deeper into, into seeing how really the story of Mormon polygamists and how it was not just this clean cut in 1890 or even 1904, but that there was there were decades and decades of a gray area, you know, with, with polygamists in the LDS church. Um. Anyway, it sort of created really a denominational crisis. I say not a faith crisis because I knew what I believed. 
the general Mormon, what I call the Mormon theological paradigm, I still believe that. But um, I realize that the church is sort of the object of its own veneration. You know, it's uh, people get up in testimony meetings and they testify they know the church is true. They know it. But at the same time, if you stop doing that and stop going to church, or if you don't do everything the church says, you can lose your testimony, which I thought, how do you lose knowledge? If you actually know something, how do you lose knowledge? And I asked him really quickly, they're just talking about belief, but they're saying, I know, when actually they just have faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing wrong with not knowing. But all these things sort of played into, I guess, the, denomin the denominational crisis that was boiling up within me. But um, shortly after I joined the church um, in 1977, I went to college my first year in uh, Virginia before transferring to Rickson and to BYU. And I was, originally I was an art major because my original goal was I wanted to get into animated films. I wanted to be Walt Disney. Uh, <laughs> I, made, I started as an art major and well, one day we had, to, had an assignment. We had to sketch something on it. So I ended up sketching, I, what for me was a drawing of Joseph Smith. I knew he boarded with Emma and her parents while he was doing, a, doing money digging for Josiah Stoll. And he had his peep stone. And I drew this picture or sketches for a picture of Emma out in the, the yard, the farmyard, about to basically slaughter a rooster for dinner. And Joseph, next to her on a stump, basically holding his cedar stone up, sort of like flirting, not flirting with her, but also like trying to cast a spell on her, trying to tell her about the stone and her sort of being entranced by him. And uh, from that, I got the idea, God, I'd like to write about that. I'd like to write a play about Joseph Smith and money digging and getting maybe the 1826 trial, but basically explore that, that relationship with Emma, who came from a very upscale, very wealthy for that time and that place, Methodist family. Her uh, an uncle on her mother's side was one of the prominent Methodist ministers in that part of Pennsylvania. They were active Methodists. And she was very rational. She was she was well educated, more so than Joseph was. And uh, how does somebody like? She was two years older. So how does an educated, upscale, twenty-one-year-old young woman fall for a nineteen-year-old treasure digger? You know who's dirt poor, but it happened. And so, I thought, and, and I, I have to, to say very quickly, I think that you know, wouldn't you agree with me, Landon? At that point, more than ninety-nine point nine percent of members of the church. Oh, it, the trial, yeah. the stone, the digging. Don't you think, Landon? Like even, no even one knows this. Most people who've been in there, you know, who are in their fifties, know about the church. Right, apostles. <laughs> yeah. This is pre-Michael Quinn. I think yeah, our yeah. viewers and listeners need to understand. This is pre the speech at the Mormon History Association in Nauvoo, where they they brought up some of the talismans and things. Rob yeah. studying on his own, not afraid of sources, all throughout the restoration pieced it all together. And here he is, just I mean, a kid going, this is fascinating. So sorry to interrupt, always, but I just want to make people aware how unusual this is, that you even they, knew this story. And what, what was unusual to me was that more people who uh, were in the church, BYU major students and things, and didn't know about it. It's like, but this is, has always been out there. Go to the library if you only read LDS or LDS-approved sources. And that was one of the things that bothered me early on my first few months in the church. I would say, oh, I read this book about Mormonism by like a sociologist or something. Well, is that, has that been approved by the church? Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay, we're supposed to go after all truth regardless of the of the source. We're, we're saved by knowledge, you know. Uh, 
and yet we only read approved sources. And there was even a distinction in those days. There was Deseret. If it was from Deseret Books, that was church. If it was Bookcraft, mm, yeah, beware of that. That's Bookcraft. That's not approved by the church. Yeah, yeah that's so. synonymous with witchcraft, bookcraft. <laughs> Anything with the word craft in it. Witchcraft, bookcraft, yeah. witchcraft. We can't do it. So, oh my gosh. So you're very young and you decide to write this play about things that so no I started one writing else has it, ever And my, my first known. year and a half, of B, two years of BYU, I, I didn't submit it because I, I was still working on it. And uh, actually between my, my sophomore and junior, I took a nine month break, came back to Virginia to work and save more money so I could finish college. And during that time, I, I finished writing it. This would have been in 1980, 81. Went back in 81 and uh, was not going to submit it for a grade. Uh, an advanced playwriting class that summer was being taught by Orson Scott Card. Uh, and I had planned on writing another story that I really wanted to dramatize. And that was a story about uh, the polygamous underground in the 1884-86 up to about the manifesto. And about a man marrying three women during that period. And just what all that, because the whole polygamy underground that evolved in Utah as people were fleeing the feds in the 1870s, 1880s, is a fascinating story. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so I, I did a synopsis of that and turned that in to see if I could write the screenplay for my project that semester. And the policy at BYU, I found out, was you cannot submit anything to do with polygamy for a grade at BYU, at least at that point. Ooh. How ironic at Brigham yes. Young at University, Brigham Young you cannot University. get anything for a grade that has to do with the, the man only thing more ironic than that was that there was a big statue of Brigham Young with his beard, but men couldn't grow beards. Yeah. So, so many ironies. Yep, I remember yeah, that. But that, wow, that's wow. The sort of the, the LDS culture, what I call classical Mormonism disconnect, that I was just always sort of aware of, but nobody else, they seem blissfully ignorant of it all but um in my that summer so and this would have been summer of 81 i decided okay i'll go ahead and i'll turn in my first draft of digger which i completed in virginia and for a grade well this was my first real full-length play and it was actually a mini series i mean it was like 160 single spaced and orson said wow this we read somebody this is fantastic this really is narrow it down you have a mini series here, maybe just pick one part of it. So I did the first seven or eight scenes, first act of the show, actually, and narrowed that down even more over that summer and turned that in. And he praised it up and down. Uh, so this is fantastic. He started sharing it with Chuck Whitman and uh, and all the other uh, faculty members saying, you've got to read this. This is something. And I was surprised because I hesitated to turn it in because at that point, there were the, the 1826 trial for uh, folk magic was known in anti-Mormon circles and in some historian circles, but the church at that point was either publishing or BYU scholars were publishing apologetics that were basically trying to explain it away, like the documents from the, the 1826 trial is basically being fraud, fraudulent. Uh, there were a number of, of apostles, prominent apostles, who said, you know, if this is true, it's the most damning evidence against Joseph Smith ever. And it would call the whole restoration into question. Therefore, it can't be true. <laughs> and that was sort of the take. Easy so I answer. was surprised that everyone <laughs> was being moved by this play and uh, was their testimonies were not being threatened. I mean, I was trying to write Joseph Smith as a charismatic figure and leaving it up to the audience 
each audience member decide whether he's a fraud, uh, whether he is a charlatan, or whether he is sincere. And uh, Emma, and, and towards the end of the show, has a line to her mother. She said, yeah, he's a fraud, but he's a, he's a sincere fraud. And uh, I think that's what appealed to her. I mean, obviously, Emma was, she was not a stupid woman. <laughs> she obviously felt, I would assume, intentional sexual attraction to the man. I mean, if that the, the core type that was real last summer is relevant he was very good looking i think he was much better looking than the traditional depictions of him or he looked for masculine and masculine and handsome and all of that so i imagine her being i wrote about her being attracted to him but resisting it because of his beliefs and his weird occupation of of being a peepstone gazer and digging for buried treasure but eventually as he shares with her that he also has some reservations about all of this as well and starts sharing his religious ideas. And basically through Emma and with Emma, we see him go from a peepstone wizard <laughs> into somebody who actually is moving more into the vein of being a prophet and being more concerned about God, which I think he always had a belief in. And I really, I think Dan Vogel and his groundbreaking works, it has really, uh, given a true depiction of what Joseph Smith was. I do think he was a pious fraud. I think he absolutely believed that God was moving him and giving him thoughts and feelings to basically fix what he saw as broken Christianity. And uh, I think that got off track later on, but um, I did think he was sincere. So that's what I was presenting in this play. And faithful LDS members were incredibly moved by it. In uh, December of 81, one of my roommates, we had a couple of play readings. He loved it. And for his, he was taking a directing class. And for his mass club project, that is, he had to direct a one act or a long scene in, in the uh, Nelke Theater for the other directing students. And anybody in the theater department could come watch it. And then he would present the scene that he would direct, direct. And then we would spend an hour critiquing his direction. Well, he did uh, scene three from Digger. And what it turned into was like an hour testimony meeting. No one was even talking about his directing. They were talking about how moved they were by the play. And I mean, this one graduate student got up there and was in tears saying, this, I was watching the real Joseph Smith and Emma. I know that's what they were really like. And I'm very, I'm very grateful for all this. And I think that I did present something closer to that, to the real Joseph and Emma, probably more so than anything else has ever been presented there. But my thought was, aren't you aware that what I'm presenting is not the Sunday school version of Joseph Smith. Even the first vision in, in that I'm using the 1832 with only the Lord Christ appearing to him. And yet nobody seemed to be aware of that. And wow. so it went on to win the 1982 Mayhew Award. Usually with the Mayhew winners, they they present them as a, a main stage production in the big theater, the Margats, I think it was. And um, But previously that year, they had done a show about LDS missionaries called Fire in the Mines, Fire in the Mind. And uh, at the end of that show, this active, uh, this LDS uh, missionary runs off with the girl he's been teaching. And it's sort of a tragedy. Well, it was a beautifully written show. It's, I mean, I got, I think, one of the few classics of Mormon drama, but the public went ballistic about it. And so the theater department decided we can't do anything for the next few years about the church that's the least bit controversial. And so they didn't do it as a main stage, but they did a lot. They did produce it as a graduate production in December of 82. And um, Sunstone Review came and reviewed it and called it a landmark. And 
drama. And I went back to bed and decided to leave the church. So it was odd that sort of my star was rising <laughs> at the same time I, with I can't go along with the organization anymore. And so I went back home and it's kind of ironic. Ironically, left. Rob, is he breaking up for you? In, in 84, was excommunicated. A little bit, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, so uh, you graduated they, in 83, is that right? You I graduated, graduated in, in December of 83. I uh, just missed you. I entered in 84. So you must have been in the era of the 7th East Press and some of those folks there. Yes. You were there oh, with like Maxine they, Hanks and Jeff Pingree yes. and all of them. Oh, See, wait. I'm trying to put a panel together of all these yeah, folks because this wait, is such that... a pivotal era. And this play is an example of exactly what I'm talking about. It was scholarship and the intellectual pursuits. There was no holes barred. And, and it's mm -hmm. incredible. And everything we're trying to do today, post-Mormon wise, are on the shoulders of all of you. So that's incredible well, that you were part of that. Impresses wonderful because when they found out that BYU was not going to do Digger as a main stage, but allowed to be done as, as a graduate production, they wrote a cover. It was the cover of one of their issues. Oh. BYU censors play, bans play. Wow. And they and they interviewed Chuck, uh, Charles Metton. He said, "No, we're not. We just." We're, we were not censoring it. We're, we, we think it's a beautiful play. It needs some work. We're going to be doing it as a graduate production later this year. We're still doing it. And you know, later in 2013 or 14, when the uh, gospel essays were, were, were released, uh, some of my LDS friends um, or, who were dealing at the same time, uh, she, she posted on her Facebook page. She goes, none of this surprises me. I knew this back in, two, in 1981 because of my friend wrote a play called Digger. And I always thought, you know, if the church house you wanted a great alibi, like, oh, we've never been hiding this. All they have to do is say, hey, we produced a play about it in 1981 and gave the play a literary award. But they won't At do that. BYU. No, that's exactly right. So I have to ask you this question. Um, a side note, Orson, Orson Scott Card, right? So do you have any feeling that him being exposed to your writings and everything you'd found that no one else knows, could that possibly have influenced uh, some of his more major works, Alvin Maker? I can't say. I know that he, he, he was very interested. He really, I mean, he, you know, I, over the years and the decades since we have gone totally separate ways politically with regards to gay rights and things, but I owe him just an immense a debt of gratitude because he was so supportive at the time. I mean, nobody, if he had not actually on his own without letting me taken copies around to the faculty members of the show, no one would have known about it other than a few of my friends. So um, I, I would, but uh, he was very fascinated by that. And at that time he was finishing up a book that the working title was Saints and it was eventually published under that title, but initially it was published, I think around 1985 as a, or 84, as a mass market paperback called A Woman of Destiny. <laughs> and it was sort of like a, a romance novel of public. <laughs> it was actually, the, the fictional character was based on a mixture of his grandma, I think her great-grandmother, great-grandmother who immigrated from England and became involved in polygamy, and Eliza R. Snow's story. He sort of morphed those into one fictional character. Mm. But, um, I was surprised probably around 1987 or 88 when I was in the bookstore and there is Seventh Son. Yeah, that's thought, what I wondered. Alvin Maker. I thought, what? Alvin I went, Maker. This, is this Digger? 
I mean, even the name yeah. Alvin, that was Joseph Smith's oldest brother, who was the main and money digger, peeps don't person until he died. And do you know and, what we're uh, talking about, Landon? It's a book that has, uh, or a series that has major LDS tones yeah, it's to a, it. It's, like, I, it's I, set in America in a parallel universe, basically. Yeah. It's a parallel version of America, where I think America is still part of the British colonies still. Yeah. But it's a family in the New England area. They have seven children, and the seventh son is basically a provincier and revelator and mm-hmm. communes with the spirit of, of ancient Native Americans. And it's, I, I mean, it's the Joseph Smith story turned into fantasy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I, I was, my first thought was, you stole my idea. But <laughs> I, I can't say that. You're artists only as good as who you every, copy every from. Every artist yeah, steals do. idea. Every writer steals ideas. Oh, we, hear, wow. we read something, another play or another novel that somebody else has written. We love it, but we think, but you got something wrong. And so we take elements right. of that and we incorporate it into our own work. So that's oh, just- I can do it different. Artists give no, it No, and I want to I wanna tell our listeners and viewers that in the show notes, we are going to link. There are copies of Digger that you can read. You can, you can you know, enjoy this. Yeah, it's, yourself, it's currently, and actually, it says 2013. It's, it's handled by- Zion Theatricals. I just go to Zion Theatricals. Yeah. They have copies and they they license it. They're the same company that handles Saturday's Warriors, My Turn on Earth, <laughs> Carolyn Pearson. Wow. So all the, all the big Mormon dramas, they handle bigger. And, and then there's the treasure digging play. That's really there, funny. Yes. Right in there with yes. all those other ones. And that's so, but you didn't. This, this makes me think we need to have a post-Mormon theater company to bring oh, all of these Oh, my goodness. I, I wish. For so well, many I I've wish. talking about that I'm going, I'd love to see that, you know? Well, you know, yeah. it's interesting. I um, Back in 2000, early 2013, uh, Jane Barnes, who's a writer, she uh, was the writer of the PBS miniseries, The Mormons, that aired in 2007. Fantastic theory series. She's a fantastic researcher and documentary film writer. And... Uh, she was just intrigued with Joseph Smith too. And she published a book in early 2013 called uh, I fell in love with Joseph Smith, I think was the title of it. And uh, it was a, you know, hardback cover mainstream publisher and all of that. And I read it and was fascinated by it because she shared the same fascination with him and, and, and really sort of fascination with the theology he brought forth. But, and, and she did all this while studying and doing the research for that miniseries, for the documentary series on PBS. And she actually looked into the LDS church and attended, but she just, she saw the disconnect. She saw how it was authoritarian and sort of. Yeah, as a woman, you probably would pick it, that Yeah, and it was so. not right. And here she was a single woman. So she decided not to go that way, but she still maintained a real love for Joseph Smith and a real interest and even affinity for much of the theology that he got, which contrary, you don't get that in the LDS church anymore, is actually very positive about human nature. But anyway, she was, um, I, at that point, I was head going up to, to Craig Prince's home in Potomac, Maryland for his monthly Sunday evening study groups, which just, are just fantastic. And I mean, we're talking, you think of a study group, you think of 12 or 13 people. No, this is like 50 or 100 people. And, is, you know, and this is Greg and, Prince's uh, had, study oh, group? Craig, oh, oh Craig Prince is the most generous, open-minded. I mean, if there were more, if they, if there were four apostles that in the LDS Church who were like Craig Prince, in my opinion, it would be a totally different institution. Wow. I mean, he he's just a fantastic man. But he had her um, present at one of these uh, study groups, and so I went up there and I was talking to her, and I, I said, "You get Joseph. You understand him." 
And I had, um, at that point, Digger had not been published um, by uh, Zion Theatricals yet. I was actually in the process of getting it ready for print. But I, I had ran off a copy of the Sunstone edition. I gave her, here's a play I wrote in, in, back in the early 80s, if you want to read it. Well, she read it, loved it, got hold of me afterwards and said, I'm in Charlottesville. I've approached the uh, Earl Hammer Jr. Theater. If you know who Earl Hammer Jr. is, that's John Boy, the real John Boy. From the Waltons. He's the novelist who wrote Spencer's Mountain, which is made into okay. a movie, Henry Fonda. And Turned it into, okay. And then the TV version was called The Waltons. The Waltons. But yeah, so wow. his theater company in Charlottesville did a reader's presentation in, in the fall of 2013. And uh, then about a month later, Craig Princeton, why don't we do a, a reading here for our study group? And so uh, we did a uh, reading of the show at Great Prince's house. He he played Emma's father. His wife played Emma's mother. And uh, it was a lot of fun. That's amazing. Um, and, and then your interest is still just peaked because well, I, I guess we should tell our viewers and listeners, one of the reasons that we decided now was a great time to have Rob on is because uh, there's a new play. Um, it's playing in Utah County now, but I know it's touring going to be touring all around and it's called the principal wife and it is about polygamies it's kind of billed as a positive view empowering for women kind of a thing and i've i've interviewed some of the people that are connected some of the creators of it and it's it's just it's it's very different one of its principal reasons um for its creation was to let it's it's basically made for non not mormons to let them know that we don't practice polygamy anymore, that it wasn't necessarily a negative, it could be a positive, you know, that people did the best they could and it could be an empowering situation for women. So kind of an interesting spin, kind of different. And I thought, hmm, Rob not only wrote Digger, but why don't we now talk about some of the other plays on that topic? Because your fascination, I think, grew from Digger and continued on and you've written theatrical treatments of this topic. So I think you're a perfect person to kind of address even just Mormonism and drama. It's such an interesting topic, you know, one we don't have time here to cover completely, but it's absolutely fascinating. Well, my first attraction to Mormon history that day in American history class in high school, when I read the, the page and a half was, I love history and I'd always wanted to work in theater or film or something uh, behind the scenes, writing, directing, that sort of thing. And my first reaction is, as I'm starting to study more, he says, why doesn't anybody make movies about this or write plays about this? You know, whether you think these people were true saints being called by a true body, or you think they were totally deluded or think they were maybe just human, something in between. Why isn't, why aren't there movies about this? This is fascinating. It's a, a chapter of the U.S. history that was so influential. Um, but at that point, there was no such thing as Mormon studies, which thank God there is now, because now there were historians who were taking this seriously. So I was always interested in, in this, in the Mormon story and Mormon history as a vehicle for, for drama, plays and films, TV, whatever. So when I, when I heard about Principal Wife, I'm, I was actually, my first reaction, it still is, I'm glad it's out there. I really, the more people that write about this, the better. I did see some of the interviews. They seem very, very talented people. I've seen some clips from the show. The orchestrations are beautiful. They have equity actors. It looks like a beautiful production. But their their approach, when they told me what their objective was, as you, it was to basically get the message to non-LDS that the LDS church no longer practices this. And it's been gone since 1890. And uh, it's not a part of anything anymore. And like I said, there were some good points to it. 
And I think I, in one of the interviews I talked to, they were talking about the characters sort of being archetypes. And that's all very good to have archetypes if you're writing a myth. But if you're writing a drama that's supposed that humans are supposed to watch and take as, as a recreation of, of, of human life, an imitation of life on stage or on the screen, it has to go deeper than that. You can't do that if people are just stereotypes or archetypes. People cannot get emotionally invested in those type of personifications, those types of characters. So the characters have to be real. They have to resonate with the audience members. Audiences are different, of course, but generally, I think that when you are writing for an audience, uh, whether it's LDS or non-LDS or in other genres, I'm gay, writing for a gay audience or a black audience or an evangelical Christian audience, I think you automatically reduce your vision. You reduce because now you're going to take your characters as each character has to basically represent some aspect of the community. And therefore, to protect the community, the characters have to be either virtuous and have to be evil or, or villains. You have to go to this black and white melodramatic thing or just sort of get lost in sentiment and play to the feelings that your targeted audience has. That's not what drama is supposed to be as an art. It's supposed to be presenting a story characters who have internal conflicts they have conflict with each other that's all impetus of the, of the drama the story the, the action and so you just have to go deeper into the human psyche into the human emotions um there was um harold bloom was one of the great writers of, of shakespeare uh, writers about shakespeare and, and english literature world literature yeah and, and interestingly enough wrote a book in 82 called the american religion and he was a huge fan of joseph smith and mormon theology not necessarily the LDS church and what it's become. But uh, in writing about uh, Shakespeare, he dealt with the theory that basically we would not have had Freud had it not been for Shakespeare, because Shakespeare in his monologue showed characters who were conflicted and they were arguing with themselves to be or not to be. These are all internal. He used monologues, which until then were just used, hey, this is how I feel, this is what I think, this is what I've done, this is what I'm going to do, to where the characters are looking inward and exploring their inner life in a realistic way and, and with be beautiful poetry, beautiful language, but dealing with real feelings. That's what you have to have in a show post-Shakespeare, whether it's written in poetry or not. The characters have to feel like real human beings. I didn't see a lot of that in LDS theater. I still don't. I think there's more of it than there was certainly in the 70s, but um, um, the characters still tend to be vehicles for apologetics. They they represent aspects of the LDS community instead of being human beings who are LDS. Sorry for that rant. No, that, no but uh, you took a different tact. You took a different tact in the next yeah, well, couple plays that you wrote. That's what's so wonderful about this. In, in 85, after uh, I was uh, excommunicated, and again, I went to my excommunication trial, I would not have missed that for anything. That was so much, <laughs> so interesting. Not oh, you're one of those. <laughs> I did, just so your viewers know, I did return to the LDS church in 94 and uh, remained active until 2003 and then resigned in 2007. But going back to 85, when I... Uh, left the LDS church. I was back in Virginia. I was working in theater. And um, I just, you know, when, when you leave the LDS church, even after a number of years, your whole social life has revolved around that. And slowly, 
doing acting in theater, working in theater, that became my social life. But I still was dealing with so much of this uh, denominational conflict, I call it, with the LDS institution. And one of the things that just always irked me and just seemed wrong was the myth, I would say even just the lie, that polygamy ended in 1890. And after that, it was gone. And that at its height, only about, I think in the 70s, the church pamphlets were saying, at its height, only 5% of members were involved. Well, I actually know at its height, which was actually in the mid-1850s, about 30% of adult members were living in polygamy. And they also were the ancestors of most, the majority of Utahns afterwards, because they were the ones that had the most children. Um, but I was just, I thought, well, I need to deal with this. And so I decided to write a play about a Mormon family coming together for a uh, Pioneer, the Pioneer Day celebration in Provo, Utah in 1903. And my objective was these are all going to be, it's going to be a man and his three wives. And uh, they're all, one of the oldest sons who is going to BYU Academy. He's sort of like a faculty member at BYU Academy, but he's 24 years old and he's still unmarried and he wants to get married. And he wants to marry the daughter of another ward member who is who was born into polygamy and is sort of the voice of the future. He hates it. He does not want his daughter marrying into a family where the, the father-in-law is going to be a polygamist, an active polygamist. I decided to explore that, but all of these characters, I thought all of these characters are good people. Nobody's a villain. They all have integrity. They really are all doing the best they can with their situation. They're trying to make their lives work. And uh, they are all good people. So um, sort of a different, um, different things influenced, inspired me. Um, I had always loved the plays, uh, the films of Katherine Hepburn. She's my favorite film actress. And I particularly loved her movies with Spencer Tracy, where she was sort of the outspoken progressive woman, you know, very decent and moral, but he was the equally moral, ethical, conservative, old school American male. And so I took that, I'm going to write a play about polygamy that could have been made into a movie in the 1940s with Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy in the leads. Catherine Hepburn would have been the, the first wife and Spencer Tracy would have been the husband. And so that was, I sort of wrote with those voices and personas in mind, but I wrote this play, The Beehive State, and it deals with this family. The idea that basically in 1890s, uh, polygamists stopped living with each other is just false. Uh, the only thing the 1890s manifest, 1890 manifesto did was said, we're not performing any more new plural marriages in our temples. That's what it said, and encouraged people to obey the law of the land. But people who were marrying into polygamy right up to that point still continued to live together for the rest of their lives. Many of them did. And since some of those people were probably in their 20s and 30s, that means they probably lived polygamously with their spouses or in those marriages until the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. So the idea that this just ended in the 1890s is ridiculous. Uh, to get sort of a timeline, there was the first manifesto in 1890. In 1895, the LDS Church issued a political manifesto, which basically said the general authorities could not run for office unless they were approved to do so by the first presidency. In 1889, B.H. Roberts ran and was elected to Congress from Utah. He was a practicing polygamist with three wives. Congress refused to seat him, and he was sent back to Utah. Then in 1903, uh, Apostle... Um, Reed Smoot, who was a monogamist, was elected to the U.S. Senate from Utah. 
and uh, Teddy Roosevelt backed him, and uh, the uh, you know the, the Senate did not want to seat him, and that led to the Reed Smoot hearings, a congressional investigation on par with Watergate or Iran Contra that went on from 1904 to 1907, and they investigated the Mormon church and polygamy. They even got President Joseph F. Smith under oath and had him testify, during which time he admitted, yes, he was still living with his wives and having children by them, as were other polygamists who had married before the manifesto. And then he, President Smith issued the second manifesto in 1904, which was basically LDS officials could no longer perform uh, polygamous, new polygamous marriages outside of the United States, and that anyone doing that would be excommunicated. But uh, it was still a number of years before the two apostles, uh, John Taylor, John W. Taylor and um, Crowley, were actually excommunicated for doing that. And actually, Crowley was never excommunicated. He just had his priesthood revoked in 2011. But he was an active uh, in the early fundamentalist community until the 1920, mid-1920s. And then in 1940, or late 1930s, was re had his priesthood reinstated in the LDS church. All of this is just showing that this was not a clear thing that ended in the 1890s. And Heber J. Grant, who died in 1940, was the last practicing polygamist president of the church. That was one year before Pearl Harbor. One year before, you know, World War II was already going on. put it in that on. perspective. Yeah, this was 40 <laughs> years, 40 years after the manifesto. Every acting president was a practicing polygamist while they were president of the church until 1940. So I wanted to dive into that. But the, the play actually is set, like I said, 19, summer of 1903 in July over the course of two days. And it is a look at this, this family. And... Um, you have the debate between the polygamous father who still believes that it, it was the will of God. And then uh, you have the uh, potential father-in-law for the young son who is an anti-polygamist. Towards the end of Act 1, they have a theolog they have a discussion. They get together to pray and talk about the situation. And it sort of devolves into a political, a theological uh, debate about the nature of Heavenly Mother. And uh, it really gets into the whole theology behind polygamy, which I'm pretty sure the principal wife does not get into. Usually most LDS treatments of polygamy is God commanded it, and so we did it because we were obedient. It doesn't get into theology, which is that spirits are sexually procreated, and that for a man to be a proper God and to populate his worlds, he needs countless wives to have his spiritual offspring. It's very much the God makers. They, they, they did nail the theology in that anti-Mormon film that was created by revealed in 1852 as the justification for polygamy. And uh, so the, you get this sort of comical, I think it's comical, it got last when we produced it, debate between these two men about the nature of a heavenly mother. And it, of course, devolves into a out now, not this fight, but arguing and shouting. And following that, uh, the, the father announces, the polygamous father announces to his three wives and his son that he actually was going to announce tomorrow that he's going to take a fourth wife. Because that was still going on. This is 1903. And it was going to be outside the church, but there was going to be someone in the church. Uh, to, well, the first wife and the other two wives, they rebel against this. And uh, they have a standoff. And then they come back in Act 2, and sort of all the truth about their marriage comes into play. 
And it ends with uh, the first wife realizing, uh, who's been married to the man the longest, and it has like about nine children by him, that they never really had each other, you know, uh, as husband and wife. She, they had had passion initially when they were married. They had all these children. They had built a life together that was interesting, even adventurous, but they never really had one another. And um, that's the type of thing that I think the women dealt with. And, and the men too. I mean, there are some heartbreaking things. If you look at the yeah. journal of, of William Jordan, uh, William Clayton's journal in, in Nauvoo, as nut, nutty as he was, he was a tormented man. I mean, he was as tormented by all this as, as his wives were. I think he was more of a narcissist, so he may do with it, but he, uh, it was hard for the men too, especially the ones who were trying to have integrity and trying to do what they thought was right. And the father in, my, in, in the beehive state is a man of care. He does love his family. He just doesn't know how to love his wives. Um, and he actually finds out later in life, at this point in the play, he's 53 years old. And he has fallen in love with a woman that he actually wants to take as a fourth wife. And she's a widow. She's his age. They will only get married for, for time, not eternity. <laughs> that doesn't help it with his current wives. But he has actually, actually fallen in love with somebody. He's actually connected on a deep emotional level with a woman late in life. And that's a connection that he had never had with his three wives, even the one that he was married to the longest and had the most children with. So at the end of this play, uh, the first wife, she sort of um, has this sort of come to Jesus meeting with the, the first husband. Um, I have a couple I have a couple of things I could read from it because I like her monologue because it's... Uh, Again, this is a Catherine Hepburn style character. I, are you going to read Which, it in the voice of Catherine Hepburn? No, I just love this I, I because it really, <laughs> it really is the human oh. condition. You know, it really is. And, it, and it's like you said, real people doing the best that they can. Sometimes the circumstances are tragic having to do with polygamy. Like I think of my own, my principal ancestor married to sisters when everything said, nope, stop. What do you do? You know, finally divorced the actual wife, married the younger sister because she could take care of him in ailing health. The other sister lived next door. I mean, you can just imagine, you know, they were bonded. They were together. The heartbreak, the situation, trying to do the best they could. You know, those are the real stories. Those yeah. are the actual real stories. So, yeah, I, read us a little bit of one of the monologues. And then I think we're going to love to talk to you about your next phase of your career. Right. <laughs> there, are, there are two parts from the One is to the oldest son, who basically is, uh, at the end, he is going to marry the girl of the non of the, the valley non-polygamous LDS father. Uh, but um, he tells his wife, you know, it's this is also in the background of the Reed Smoot election and the, the, the oncoming hearings. And uh, the, the first husband, uh, the polygamous husband, is basically told by his bishop uh, over the phone, by the way. So I sort of demonstrated modern life coming into play right. here. Because he's a wealthy man. He has a telephone. The bishop calls him and said, you can't take a fourth wife or it would be excommunicated. So uh, in the after that, uh, the, the son is talking to his mother, the first wife, and says, you know, it's gone. It's, it's, it's never coming back. And then she says, well, what was all the sacrifice for? If something so important can change, maybe none of it's true. And the son is bothered by this. He says, no, of course the church is true. And then she asks, then where is my place in it? Where do I belong? Maybe on display in some Gentile museum back east, a concubine in a Mormon era, circa 1903. But no, I'm sealed into the church. It's the only place I've ever, I'll ever be understood, respected, even pitied. You and your brothers and sisters are the sealing agents. 
not priesthoods, oaths, or covenants. Through you, I'm sealed to your papa and through him to the church. Maybe that was the plan all along. The prophets knew that the, that the principle was the only way to knot us all together so that they, we'd never leave the church. How very clever they were. They were clever and cruel. And the son, being a devout elder, he, he's horrified to hear this and talks, basically talks her down. And sort of mansplains, well, you're just having a bad day, aren't you, mama, with all of this? You know, but everything will be better now. So just stop thinking that way. So I show the, the people, and she's the one basically becomes the heretic, but still stays in the church, trying to make it all work. Even when they spill their guts, they back away from it. They put things in compartments to try to make the system work. Right. But later on in talking to her husband, um, she says that we were married for time and all eternity. Remember, in that ceremony, I was taught that you were to be my husband and Lord. Well, draw near, dear Lord. Here's a confession for your, your ears only. Mark it well. I'll, only I'll never repeat it again. My dear Talmadge, you are not now, nor will you ever be a god. Neither will I or anyone else on this sweet earth. We just don't have the makings for it. We have our hands full just trying to get along as human beings. And heaven knows we made an awful mess of that. To which the husband then sort of starts to bear his testimony, what he knows. And she said, and you go right on knowing that. I know otherwise. I know that this whole business of life is much simpler than you and the church make it out to be. I know that I have children who need me and I need them. And I won't allow you or the church or my own foolhardy attempts to make your gospel work come between me and them any longer. And the husband says, my God, you are an apostate. And she says proudly, yes, I am. Tell anyone else not, feign ignorance, expose me and I'll deny it. The husband says, your words will expose you. She goes, oh no, dear heart, the words are for you only. This, just this once, I'll be the most dangerous and clever of apostates. I'll never, never utter a testimony of anything again, but I'll be at every church meeting, listening and just smiling. How could I do otherwise? It's all I've ever known. And I'll lavish on our children and your wives and everyone else all the love and understanding that until now I reserve for you and the church. That love will become more important to them than all of your doctrines, priesthoods, and powers, because it will be free, no conditions attached. Our children will know I love them regardless of their standing with the, with the church or your God. That's all I have to offer. It's all I've ever had. It wasn't enough for you. Too easily attained, I suppose, too simple for your patriarchal days. It'll be more than enough for them. I'll win all of their hearts in the end, and I'll never have to utter a word. Wow. And so I that's I trying to show that's the type of thing that people were dealing with, I think. Right. Maybe they the couldn't reality. speak like that. And at the end, they all go off to the as a happy family to the uh you know, Pioneer Day Parade in Provo. And uh, everyone's happy again. They're putting on faces. But yeah. between in these individual relationships, their whole ground has shifted. And moving forward, you know that the family is going to be totally different. The dynamic will be, although on the surface, they'll still continue to be active, happy LDS church members. Wow, so, that's amazing. And and again, for our listeners and viewers, we will put links to this because it's also available, isn't it, to read? Yeah, well, actually, the, the play is, was published in Sunstone in 89. Yeah. And uh a few years ago, I actually came across the, the the company that produced it did an archival home video of it. This was back in 1980, 89. So for 
not the best quality, but actually it's not all that bad. And I digitized that. I put it on a YouTube page. So I'll share with you oh. links to act yeah, one. And no. you can actually watch the original production, which um, was pretty good. I had a really good cast. Yeah. yeah, no, we would absolutely love to see this. So, I mean, I told you, Landon, that Rob is extremely fascinating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so no, much to what he's doing. It's just powerful, incredible. Uh, yeah, very powerful story. I, I can see why you won the awards just from listening to you read yeah. that. Just right. from listening. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so anyway, I encourage everybody to go check out these plays. They're just incredible. And they really show, I feel, a more realistic view of the human condition and yeah. polygamy and the early church, which is amazing. So the one other thing that I'd love to talk to Rob about, of so many, I think we might have to have Rob back. What do you think, Landon? <laughs> There's yeah, just so much to go over. But the other thing you might have picked up from his bio is his involvement for over a decade in the Hill Kimura pageant. I would mm -hmm. love to hear, and I'm sure listeners and viewers would love to hear just a little bit. It seems like a natural progression. BYU theater graduate, you're writing plays, you're out of the church, back into the church. At this point, you're in the church. You know, tell us, tell us about the Hill Kimura and tell us then finally your take on what happened. Where did it all go? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? You know, because I think a lot of people still really miss that, you know? Yeah, I don't blame them. I do too. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah. my last summer was 2003 and that was my last year active in the church. But I mean, I would say probably every late June, July, around July 4th, I basically miss what I call Christmas in July. It, it was just so much fun. In 1976, I had been hired. I was artistic director of a production company in uh, New York City, and we produced national tours that toured of children's shows that toured uh, from September till uh, May of every year. So I basically had summers free to just do some writing and planning for the next season. And I thought, well, I wonder if they need any help with the Hill Kimura pageant. So I looked into that, like, how do you apply for this? And uh, I actually called up there, not really knowing who to talk to. Um, and um, got hooked up with Jerry Argentsinger, who had been the artistic director at that point for, I think, decades. And he, this was going to be his last year as artistic director. Um, he got right back with me. He knew about Digger. He had read Digger. And uh, Jerry, again, talented guy, wonderful guy, progressive, open-minded, uh, an artist, uh, really a, a great guy. And his wife had uh, was the costume designer for uh, the Hilgamore pageant, or was at that point. So uh, he took me on, and uh, and I was the only, on the, on the directing team, I was the only one that was actually working in, professional theater everyone else they were they were college professors teaching theater and um i was living living in new york actually working in theater professionally but they knew as much as i did probably more than i did about theater generally and we had the best time the uh the show it's uh the the pageant featured a cast of 600 <laughs> and jerry told me going into this we usually you have to think about it as if you were directing a grand opera or a silent movie epic because it's pre-recorded and a, a pre-recorded tape, gorgeous music, orchestrations, vocals by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I'm sorry, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. And, uh, <laughs> and no uh, one can remember that. It's okay. Yeah. No one can say it. No one can remember and, it. And then a lot of and then Orson Scott Card had written the script, I believe, 10 years earlier, but it had been so pound the drama had been pounded out of it through priesthood correlation that the end of my understanding was he was pretty much sort of disgusted and said don't ask me to write anything for the church again that's what i heard that 
might not be true, but that's what some of the other people in the pageant said. And sure enough, it was just very melodramatic and uh, sort of flat. Uh, the the vocals the the were, were all done. A lot of the men parts were done by BYU faculty members. So some of my past teachers and your husband's past teachers, and probably some of yours too. And it was sort of nice to realize in my late thirties, early forties, wow, they were great professors. They weren't necessarily the best actors <laughs> because it was pretty over the top. But um, they decided when I came on um, that they wanted to really re envision the entire pageant, and so they told me the the artistic director and the other associate director and the choreographer and battle master, go ahead, you're bound by the tape. You got to use the tape, but just go ahead and start reimagining the whole pageant from beginning to end. And so we did. And it was a lot of fun. And it was like having chess pieces. I mean, you know, you had, let me have 50 actors. You 50 go over here. I need 10 up here and 30 down here. And I need 25 Lamanite warriors battling over there. So it was really like a, a game, but it was so much fun. And it was a wonderful experience for the people who were in it. Most of these people were just good church members from all over the world who applied through their bishop and were had to go through worthiness interviews, I believe, and everything to get there. And uh, it was a mixture of like doing of, of like summer camp, summer vacation, putting on an epic outdoor drama and um, going to church all rolled into one, which was really a lot of fun. <laughs> and I, there was not, I, I had not come across anything like it in LDS culture. And I think the big tragedy is, is that it is gone now and won't come back because I know from uh, hearing these people talk and people who had, who did the pageant earlier in their lives, it really meant a lot to them. They felt that they were doing something unique. Uh, they were part of something bigger than themselves that needed them to be there personally, doing their own thing in their own unique way. And um, it's sad that the church is a sort of, it's always done this, I think, to a degree, but I think it's it's even more of a pandemic now. It's just that individuality is just squashed. Everything's correlated. Everything toe the company line, and don't question anything. And uh, you know, I mean, it's to the point where you don't even hear scriptures quoted as much in general conference as you do other general authorities who are sitting in general conference. <laughs> but um, I, so it's sad that it went the way of that. It, it, that it, it it's gone. But it was it was wonderful while it lasted. It really was, and I don't I can't think of anything in American theater, or in um, and I've worked in outdoor drama before in other places in outdoor American dramas or just in America itself that had that sort of setup where people had that sort of experience, and it was just so uniquely LDS, and it's just a tragic this something that is so uniquely LDS and so totally positive is gone. There were some funny things the first few years. Um, the costumes were uh, in were gorgeous. Uh, some of them, uh, some of the concubines or wives in Noah's court, uh, we used to jokingly call them the LeMay Knights because they had some very glittery, sparkly Vegas-like costumes <laughs> in a way. The LeMay Knights. Oh well, my I mean, gosh. The whole the whole pageantry, the the whole the specialist effects were very simple, very well done and very impressive. I mean, it was uh, sort of like a, a technic, a rock concert, Vegas spectacle, you know, Jesus in Vegas almost. It was 
but a lot of fun. And, and most of the audiences that came were not in LDS. I have a lot of friends in, in upstate New York that they grew up going to there. They're not LDS. They know nothing about Mormonism, but they went with a picnic, you know, dinner with their parents every year growing up to see it and loved it. But um, what some of the costumes for, for the men, particularly the Lamanites, in fact, all the men who were cast were told to bring, the only thing they had to bring, I think were tennis shoes, closed-toed tennis shoes, and a black Speedo. You know, something that every LDS man has in his wardrobe. Yeah. Now, that's a look. Tennis shoes for the Nephites and a black t a black Speedo. Yeah. That well, is, I thought, well, wow. okay. I, and then I got there, and I saw the Lamanite costumes, um, and they carefully cast the Lamanite warriors. They, they, they had to be young adult men, teenage boys, young adult men, and older adult men who were in fantastic physical shape because they weren't wearing very much. And especially the, the younger guys, I mean, in their 20s and late teens, I mean, they basically had their black Speedo and their little loincloth didn't cover much more. And so every summer, the first week or so, when mothers would see their... They're you know, teenage boys and young adult sons walking around and nothing more than a speedo and a Lamanite loincloth would invariably call Salt Lake City complaining. And so it became like at the first group meeting, the first day the pageant president, who was an area authority, would say, please do not call Salt Lake complaining. All of these costumes have been approved by the brethren. But uh, that was fun thing, a fun thing where an aspect of LDS church culture was coming into conflict with another aspect of LDS church culture. But um, anyway, it was fun. It was great fun. And I, I, I miss doing it. I wish that they would bring it back because I really do think it's things like that, that they want to maintain people for life. You have to give them experiences like that, that where they actually feel that they're doing something unique and uh, not just sitting in meetings for two hours a week. And doing I think the days of road shows and pageants yeah. and uh, youth activities uh, that were fun uh, are, are, have, have left the building at this point. <laughs> when, when, I, when I joined the church in 77, it was like they were getting ready. Oh, we're getting ready for a road show. Yeah. I thought, what is a road show? <laughs> I mean, I knew it of a theater. I thought, what, y'all, y'all, like, there's a touring company, a theatrical touring company? No, and they explained what it was. I said, oh, so you have a drama competition. We had a filmmaking competition instead, where you're supposed to make a 10-minute film on something related to history in your area. Yeah, With layouts about how you... Back, yeah, he, yeah, he's frozen. Road shows yeah. and all of this. There we go. Oops, Rob, oh, getting now, a little now, bit of feedback okay. on you. Now, Are you back? back? You were frozen. <laughs> I think we're okay. We were all frozen. That's yeah. right. I was hearing a little yeah. bit of weirdness. So no, and I think that, like you yeah. said, that's community. I think people look at people like us of a certain age and they go, why are you always talking about the those good old days of the church? But they were really different. It's hard to explain. Yeah. I try to explain yeah. to my young adults, children, what it was like. You know, it was very different different. We didn't necessarily see the darker side. We saw this community and we saw the pageantry and the fun and the activities. And it was very different. And and like you said, I think it kept people in for quite a while because you're very busy doing these for my, happy things. My first two years, I was running a young adult rep in 78 and 77, 78 here in Virginia. I know that sounds like a long time ago to some people, <laughs> but uh, 
But I mean, I was there at Aruba, and basically my job was to find things for us to do every Friday and Saturday night. You know, yeah. play, whether it was going to a movie, going out to eat, going bowling, going to the beach, whatever. And I would say every month or so, the steak, we had a war dance every month, and we had a steak dance every month on Friday nights. And those usually went on until 1 a.m. And no one thought yeah. anything of it. You know, it yeah. was, they'd rather have young adults in church dancing than sitting in a bar somewhere. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> dancing. But so, um, yeah, it, that, that that sort of, there's other word for it, but freedom is, is gone. Uh, it yeah. seems to be a thing of the past. It's no wondering that so many young people are leaving the church. Why stay? Yeah. Why Especially stay? There's, when, no when there's no community. And when there's no consistent theology anymore. So No, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think that's true. So, wow. I think, do you still sense some uh, mic issues, Landon? No, right now everything's fine. At all a little bit? Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that my microphone, my speaker anyway, has completely died. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can get you guys back. Okay. Okay, there we go. Yes. Sorry, I think my speaker did die. I was on Mormon Stories today, and I think it's finally just given up the ghost. So, <laughs> well, I feel, gosh, this has just been amazing and wonderful conversation. I've absolutely loved it. Haven't you, Landon? Yeah, just no, it's been fascinating. I, uh, I didn't know who Rob Lauer was. You were telling me about him. We got to talk yeah. to him in, in uh, uh, when we were traveling at one point we got to talk to you but wow you're just fascinating and i yeah. your work i'm i now want to go find these sunstone articles and yeah. and this video on on youtube and watch it yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. fascinating i didn't know there was so much mormon uh theater right. out there that that i'd never seen you know i grew up on my turn on earth and saturday's yeah. warrior but there's a whole nother set of of work out there that i've never even yeah. heard of more yeah, I, I was lucky. My, my time at BYU, I was Eugene England mentored me, and and um, yeah. Thomas Rogers, who's another fantastic playwright, still alive, uh, wrote Hubner. Uh, he's the one that sort of exposed the whole story about Hubner yeah. under the Nazis. Yeah, now he was excommunicated and executed. Last yeah. year, we were able to yeah. see that, and yeah, we yeah. did see and, that with another theater yeah. friend, Corey Ewan, which was amazing. So yeah. yeah, there's so much there, and and I just feel that whole era. Like I said, I really want to do an episode. You mentioned Eugene England. I want to talk about the Eugene England years and the Seventh Press. I mean, we've interviewed individually so many people connected to this. And I even just ran into somebody the other day at a Thrive event who said, oh, yes, I was there, you know. And you're just like, this is, it's an era. And these people are, they're just, they're, they're like national treasures. You know, they know things the rest of us don't about an era that doesn't exist anymore. The Tanners, all of it. So you know, we want to get, I, we, we want to do an episode. <laughs> we have a Facebook, I have a, a private Facebook group with, um, a number of my roommates, uh, six or seven of them, I mean, BYU, all theater majors and um, all celibate in the closet at the time, but have, are all, have all come out. Yeah. Almost, well, not all of them have left the church. A couple of them are still active in the church. Um, right. I'm Reformed Mormon. So I still consider myself devout. I'm just not LDS. Right. But um, but we have Zoom calls and stuff. And we, we've been saying for a couple of years, we need to do something with this because we were all at BYU we all came there right after the round of gay witch hunts that sort of happened towards the late yeah. 70s. Yeah. And then yeah. we were there right before another wave in the mid 80s. Really? But uh, yeah, but we sort of um, knew 
We have a ton of memories and experiences we talk about really? often about that. Would your group ever want to come on a podcast? <laughs> oh, no, that's I'm, such I'm, an interesting topic because I was there, like I said, 84, and I definitely had friends that were victims of that hunt. You know, I had friends that would come and you know, I had a roommate who pretended to be someone's girlfriend. And so that that person would yeah. stop being harassed by standards. Yeah. And even as I know we're on so many different topics here, but even as just a friend in that apartment, I had to go and testify that I saw that couple together. Yes, they were holding hands. Yes, there was, which is such an opposite thing, right? Usually they want to hear the yeah. opposite. In this case, we wanted to hear it. So I've always thought of doing an episode about that era. I know there's a lot of interest in what was really happening at BYU. So I don't know. Talk to your friends. We would yeah. love it. If I think this would be, I wish I could like take a survey viewers and listeners. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I, it, it, like I said, it's an era that you just kind of hear inklings about, but you just don't know. So we'd be more than happy to have you guys on even off camera, on camera. You know what I mean? Camera turned off. If you're not that comfortable just to talk about that era, you know, I'll bring it up to them. I, I think yeah. some of them might, because we, we've been thinking we need to do something. When yeah. we heard a couple of years ago that there was going to be a pride parade in mm -hmm. Provo, it's like, what planet is this? Yeah, <laughs> it's very different now, which is why I yeah. think you could talk about that era and the juxtaposition, how far we've come yet, how much farther there is to go. Yeah. So well, one of these I friends think... was a huge football fan. I mean, he buys tickets to the football season every year. So he's there for every game. Yep. Yeah. Even though he lives in Southern California, he goes to Utah every week. Yeah, for the game. That's amazing. Yeah. And now, Landon, our viewers and listeners get to see how the magic behind Mormonish works. We find an interesting person. We say, hey, would you like to? <laughs> and the next thing you know, we have an episode. So we'll definitely talk about this. Well, yeah. this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And we are going to put everything in the show notes, the links, whatever Rob's going to send us. Um, I know he's also working on some other projects that we mentioned in his bio. Well, so, I, yeah. I am probably, later in the fall, I am, I am publishing Beehive State and Digger, along with a, an in-depth essay study I'm doing on Mormon drama, what constitutes Mormon oh. drama. I'm publishing that. In fact, just yesterday, I uh, got one very well-known LDS playwright who was in the original production of Digger, BYU, to write the introduction to Digger. Oh and someone else very well-known in the LDS community, the Mormon studies community in Utah, has agreed to write uh, the foreword for Beehive State in addition, oh. but that'll be coming out in the fall. So I'll let you and know. And this more is about coming that. out in the fall as like an anthology of the plays and then those an two essay. plays and, and then a study I've been thinking about for years and working on called just Mormon drama. What constitutes Mormon drama? Is it a, a drama by a Mormon? Is it a, a about, about a Mormon? A Mormon? Yeah. yeah, what type of Mormon does it have to be about? And uh, well, or is it a play with a Mormon worldview and what would well and be? now I have to invite you on to the good book club we're going to buy your book read your book and we're going to have you come to a bonus event for us oh my god Rob you're going to okay. be busy with us for the next couple months so, okay seriously we would love to read your book when it comes out that sounds okay. absolutely amazing and um, like I said in our book club we just read exactly what you described things like that and then we have the author on to come and talk with us so we'd love to invite yeah. you now you guys are getting a window into the magic of the good book club this is this whole thing here boy this is turning out to be an interesting episode so anyway we will put all the links in the show notes uh, we're just so happy that rob came on thank you so much for thank sharing you. your experiences and your wisdom and just your humor i just absolutely loved it um don't forget everybody to like and subscribe to mormonish and if you would like to be made aware when new episodes are coming out you can go ahead and hit that uh button to be notified the the notification bell and we also have links um in the show notes on how to monetarily support the channel if you'd like to we have people that ask how can we help out and we finally figured 
figured out how to get a uh, PayPal and Venmo up and going. So if you'd like to help support us, we just appreciate all of you guys so much. And thank you again, Landon and Rob. And we'll say goodbye for now from Mormonish. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.